0: This program is made possible entirely by listeners just like you. For details on memberships or to make a one-time donation, please visit bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Colbert Report, The Progressive, and Le Show with a bonus extended interview I conducted with the host of Citizen Radio for our iPhone app users.
1: A new report this week shows that in just nine months at the beginning of the Iraq War, the Coalition Provisional Authority spent nine billion taxpayer dollars on what? We. We? We for the soldiers to play we oh, games. We. Yeah. They did. I don't think we had Wiis back in two thousand three, two thousand four. It was very cutting edge military technology. Cutting yeah. edge technology.
2: No, no, no. I don't. Right. Nine, $9 billion. Dollars. $9 billion. Dollars. <sighs> mm. I'm stumped.
3: Does it involve Jenny McCarthy and a USO show? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Just asking.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, what, didn't they lose $9 billion? So maybe that's it. They that's think. the answer. Nobody oh, knows. knows. Oh, yeah. Nobody knows. Oh. Nobody has any idea. Oh. You know what it's like? You know what it's like? You go to the ATM. You get out 100 bucks. A few days later, <laughs> you go to buy a Diet Snapple. And you oh. look in your wallet. There's nothing there. And you're like, where did the money go? <laughs> like that so in a strange way I kind of got the answer right you did actually (laughs) you didn't know neither look how how could we how could we punish you for not knowing where the money went when they didn't know where the money went I like this game now the coalition provisional authority could have done a better job preventing this kind of carelessness their first mistake was getting the nine billion dollars from the U.S. in the form of nine one billion dollar bills I'll tell you who does know what happened to Who does money. know? WikiLeaks Yeah, probably not Not only do they have no idea what happened to the money They also don't know why the mayor of Tikrit Now has a toupee made out of solid gold <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that sounds really uncomfortable It does It's it it a little hot <laughs> How do you lose $9 billion in nine months? I lose could, it I could not do that uh, it is disgusting that they would lose $9 billion instead of
4: misspending it the way they're supposed to. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the only thing...
1: The only way I can
2: think of to lose that amount of money is honestly a kitchen renovation. Exactly. <laughs>
5: Nicholas Kristof had a fantastic article in the New York Times. It compared costs of different things in Afghanistan, um, and first it lets us know how costly this war has been, and he gives you some context. This is amazing. So far, the Afghanistan war has cost more than the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, War of 1812, Mexican-American War. Spanish American War, all combined, adjusted for inflation. That is amazing. Amazing. Are you telling me that so far what we've accomplished in Afghanistan is the same as what we accomplished in those wars? (laughs) Who can make that with a straight face? Do you know that the Revolutionary War in today's dollars only cost $2.4 billion? That's like an afternoon in Afghanistan. 2.4 2.4 billion dollars. That's it, and it was obviously by far and away our most important war. Now, look, I know it's a different context. We didn't have stealth fighters back then, etc. And we were the insurgents. I, I get all that, but still, it's mind-numbing to think of how much we have spent in Afghanistan. I'll give you more details De- and uh, about what we could have spent it on instead. Do you know that one soldier, one U.S. soldier for one year in, uh, in Afghanistan, costs the same? As building 20 schools in Afghanistan, just one soldier for one year, and we've got o- uh, almost a hundred thousand soldiers there. it makes the head hurt. You know that one cruise missile cost Ill- is the same amount of money as 11 schools. You know how many cruise missiles we fired in Afghanistan? You know how many schools we could have built with that? You know how much more goodwill we could have done and forget the goodwill, how much more good we could have done. They say, "Oh no, it doesn't really matter because if you build the schools, the Taliban just burns them down." That's not true at all. As Christoph points out, CARE, a humanitarian organization, operates 300 schools in Afghanistan. Not one of them have been attacked by the Taliban. Greg mortensen uh, the author of Three uh, Cups of Tea, very famous in the area, has built at least 145 schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and many more that are, you know, tents or rented buildings. And the Taliban has destroyed none of them. There is a right way to do this. There is a way to earn the trust of the uh, people of Afghanistan, and it's not with cruise missiles. So, more amazing information. Obama, who was, was supposed to bring us change, right now is spending 6.1% more on defense than at the height of the Bush years. So, where's that change? All this money going into the defense industry. They love Obama. They love what's been going on. They love Bush. And all why? Why is Obama doing it? Partly because he doesn't want to get called weak. It's so ironic. He's scared of being called weak, so say, oh yeah, I'll show you, I'll escalate Afghanistan. We have three times as many troops in Afghanistan today than when we when Obama took office. We spent six point one percent more uh, in all of defense spending. When is the spending going to stop? It doesn't make any sense. And there's nothing more bloated than the defense budget. In fact, the guy who agrees with that is the defense secretary, Robert Gates. He pointed out another amazing fact. That the US battle fleet is larger than the next 13 navies combined. So if you take number 2 through number 14 in top navies in the world, combine them, they're still not as large as the US fleet. What do we need this for? He points out, Gates points out, in 2020, we will have 20 times the size of the stealth fighters that China has, at least. Do we really need 20 times the stealth fighter that China has? Maybe we need twice as much. Maybe we need five times as much. But we don't need 20 times as much. Why? Because they're making money, they're printing money. Eisenhower, a Republican president, the guy who helped us win World War II, warned us. There's a military industrial complex. They're only going to get larger. And what they're going to want to do is create more wars so they can get paid more. And what's happened since then? More senseless wars that we didn't need to be in that got a lot of Americans killed. More escalation. The only answer is always more escalation. And so much of our money sucked into that same defense industry that Eisenhower warned us about.
6: Hello Jay. This is Kenda Willie from Roswell, New Mexico. I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years so far on iTunes, but it wasn't until earlier this year that I decided to become a member and start paying for your for your very good service. In fact, I'm paying ten dollars a month instead of five, and I think it's worth more than that. You've introduced me to shows and podcasts I would never have heard of otherwise, like The Show and Citizens Radio. I appreciate your work, and I want to say thank you. Bye.
7: Hey, the new Taliban code of conduct is out. You know what that means. The old ones are gonna be available for a half price soon. Now, this is something that the Taliban appears to have been doing since at least 2006 when Newsweek got hold of that year's version of the rules. We know there's a new one out because a reporter for the Associated Press apparently got one off of a Taliban fighter in the Afghan town of Spin Bull Duck. Now the booklet is a list of rules the Taliban at least say they want their fighters to abide by, as they fight the infidel foreign troops and as they undermine the Afghan government and try to take over Afghanistan again, even though most Afghan people really freaking hate them. A lot of the rules are things like who you're allowed to kill, there's a lot about trying not to hurt civilians, instructions about when it's okay to, say, steal a car, and when you're not allowed to steal it, you're only allowed to blow it up, Uh, Western sources consider the Taliban code of conduct to essentially be better propaganda about how the Taliban would like to be seen than it is a realistic description of how the Taliban really act. Now, that said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the propaganda value of some of these rules in this Taliban rulebook could be which is what I wanna talk about with this. I mean, take, take this item from the rule book, for example. This appeared in last year's edition of the booklet. Quote, the physical appearance of Mujahideen, e.g. haircut, dress, shoes, etc., should be based on Islamic Sharia and matched with local inhabitants. It will ensure their safety as well as residents of the respective village and town. So think about that for a second. They're saying, if you blend in with the locals, Taliban fighters, that will keep those locals safer while NATO is hunting you down. (laughs) Nice sentiment, totally illogical and incoherent, but still. Uh, There's also this one, first reported in the Taliban rules from 2006, no person in a position of responsibility is allowed to use jihadi equipment and property for his personal interest. In other words, do not abuse your Mujahideen corporate card. Like I said, some of this stuff is of questionable propaganda value. But a couple of the Taliban's rules, I think could have value for the people who are fighting against the Taliban. Part of the counterterrorism strategy in Afghanistan right now is to, of course, kill Taliban leaders, both for the intrinsic military value of killing them, but also to demoralize low-ranking Taliban foot soldiers so they don't ever want to become higher-ranking leaders because that's frankly a really risky job. The other approach to Taliban foot soldiers is reintegration, not just making the Taliban a deadly, no future kind of job, but also offering incentives for Taliban foot soldiers to leave the Taliban. President Karzai in Afghanistan recently announced a big reintegration fund to literally pay Taliban fighters to quit, to lure them out of the Taliban with money. I propose, after reading these rules, that they should also try luring Taliban fighters away with cigarettes. Seriously, the AP reports this week that the Taliban rules of conduct ban smoking. All mujahideen are forbidden from smoking cigarettes. Also, beards are now mandatory. Any mujahideen who does not want to grow a beard has to get a special exemption from whoever they get a special exemption from. But beards are a must and smoking is verboten. No Taliban are allowed to smoke. This seems like it might have some strategic value. Even if they're dressing to blend in with the locals, the newly not allowed to smoke, forced to have a beard Taliban guys? I mean, think about it. They'll be the ones who are armed and dangerous, but also irritable. Maybe putting a little weight. They'll have itchy necks. Think how susceptible they might be to persuasion in that state. My friend, you don't really want to be in the Taliban anymore, do you? Can I offer you a cigarette? Are you itchy and hot? Is your mujahideen skin irritated by your forced facial hair? How about some? Fancy razors, fancy aftershave, soothing skin products for post-beard softness. And if you're not ready to commit, but you're annoyed enough by these rules that you're thinking about creature comforts offered by the world beyond your little nihilist death cult, consider nicotine gum. If you're not ready to shave yet, perhaps maybe a little manly touch-up of that beard that's so hot this time of year. Wouldn't you love to shave it? What do you think, NATO? Soft power. Persuasion, we can make more of these gift baskets. Call us.
1: Sometimes am sweeter and stick.
0: a year, a little discount for you. Please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
1: was waiting on a cab, the under my heart, three clouds of pain. She got the best of with my nine
8: Imagine that your house gets robbed and you're there. It's overnight. You wake up in the morning and somehow these people got into your house. Your stuff's laying all over the floor and your family heirlooms have been taken. And you were in the house. Something terrible could have happened. It was just, you know, the luck of the draw or whatever that these people didn't hurt you. And so you resolve to buy a gun to protect your house. If you could see the future in that family and you could see, you know, that as the son or the brother or the wife or whatever, you could see that that gun was going to cause your family to die. That that gun was actually going to be the thing that killed your family by hook or by crook. Some strange thing happens and that gun becomes a murder weapon that wipes your family out. What would you do to convince the rest of the family that this was a bad idea? Yes, I know we could have gotten killed last night during the robbery, but the truth is this gun that we bought to protect us is really what's going to kill us. That's what I think's happened to our country. I think we're purchasing the weapon that's going to be for our defense that's going to end up killing us instead. And I think a lot of intelligent people have seen this before. You know, I have, so not taking any great credit for this. President Eisenhower was talking about some of these problems that we faced in this country where, you know, the very weapons we build and maintain and develop to protect us, you know, can do other things to us too. And I was thinking when I look into the future for this soldier, ex-soldier, that uh, what's going to be sad... Is that, you know, if I was doing this hardcore history show for this period in time, the 9-11 attacks 500 years from now, Osama bin Laden is going to be in any book of the top 100 most influential people in history. I have a book like that on my shelf, by the way. I think it was written in the early 1980s or something. The top 100 most influential people of all time. It's a great book. You get a couple pages on each person, and most of it is a little biography and a rundown of what that person did in their lives. And then the rest of the piece is what they did to merit inclusion in this list and why they were chosen the rank they were. So maybe Adolf Hitler is number forty-five on the list, and Joseph Stalin is number thirty-two. And a large portion of that piece on each man is going to be why they, you know, why Hitler's forty-five and Stalin's thirty-two. Well, you know, Hitler's long-term impact was, more, you know, less than Stalin, and if you had ever had Stalin, you never would have communism. All you know, blah blah blah. So that's a big part of any of these books—the justification for why you would be in the top one hundred list of most influential people of all time. And what's sad to me is that it's pretty likely Osama bin Laden's going to be on that list. And I don't think this guy is going to do another significant thing in his life. I could be wrong. hope I'm not, but I could be wrong. He's, you know, kidney problems. He may be dead already if you listen to some people. He's already done whatever it is he's going to do that would merit his inclusion in a future top 100 people of all time list. But Osama bin Laden did, I mean, a guy in a cave with a bunch of You know, terrorists deserves to be mentioned on a list with Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Genghis Khan and Jesus Christ and Mohammed. And I mean, all these figures that are such an impact on the world. You put Osama bin Laden, a guy who killed a couple of thousand people, something Charlemagne, you know, did in an afternoon when he wasn't interested. I mean, that gets you on the list. Of course, it doesn't get you on the list. What gets you on the list is his long term impact. What's his long-term impact? Well, he knocked two buildings down, killed a few thousand Americans, and changed us forever. That's why he's going to be on the top 100 list. Osama bin Laden fundamentally changed the United States of America. It became what's known as a hinge factor in history. A hinge factor is some event that causes the natural course of things, the way the world is going, to change. It's like a door swinging in a different direction. When history makes, you know, right-angle turns, it does it because of a hinge factor, usually. And September 11th was a hinge factor event. The Second World War was a hinge factor event. The First World War is one of the greatest hinge factor events of all time. Osama bin Laden was able to create a hinge moment in the United States. And yet the only thing he could do was launch those attacks. Those attacks all by themselves are not i mean i don't mean i don't want to minimize understand where i'm going here i'm not minimizing anything that happened to anyone but folks if you said that in some other country not our country some other country in the middle of nowhere by our standards had two buildings fall down because of terrorism and three thousand people died you would go that's awful that's terrible and you go about your merry way in the long term your country wouldn't have been you know overwhelmingly affected and down the road, you wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. Wow, they had that terror. You know, I guess what I'm saying, folks, is it's hard to imagine how small of a thing that is to warrant it putting you in the top 100 most influential of all time list down the road. The reason he gets on that list is because of how we reacted to that, you know, virtual pinprick. If that's a war and you lose 3,000 people, you hardly notice that in the Second World War. Now we do, and we've transformed the country in response to that. I mean, there was a piece that came out since the last Common Sense show we did. You probably saw it, got a lot of fanfare, a multi-part piece on the growth of the top-secret world. That's what the Washington Post called it. And what's amazing about this piece, it makes me laugh, because the government made a big deal, you know, protesting to the Washington Post about the release of this story, and they were real nervous, and they were making it known that this was probably compromising important security information. And then the piece comes out and you read it, and to a degree, it's a fluff piece. I mean, they get into all the wonderful, if you come within this distance, there's this many parking spaces, all those people work in the national security industry, and all these kind of things, nothing that should make the government you know, fear disclosure. And yet at the same time, I found it interesting so many people thought this was news. I mean, the Shadow Factory came out a couple of years ago. Go read that if you want to be shocked. Bamford's book. There's something where you go, wow, I had no idea. But the point of the Washington Post story was to show everyone how we've almost added another government on top of the one we currently had, a black government, a secret government. And that this is all being done for all of us. To protect us from legitimate threats that are out there. We bought a gun, ladies and gentlemen, and that gun is going to kill us all, in terms of our, you know, former republic that we grew up admiring.
3: Technically, technically, Muslims have constitutional rights. But since 9-11, we gave up a ton of our constitutional rights, search and seizure, trial by jury, habeas corpus. I don't even know what that last one means. I think it's the little Caesar's mascot. Most of all, most of all, we have given up the right to privacy. I can't make a phone call without hearing Dick Cheney breathing on the line. (laughs) He still uses lungs, right? Okay, good. You see, after 9-11, the intelligence community realized they failed to connect the dots. So they came up with the simplest answer. More dots, please. The money spigot was just opened after 9-11, and nobody dared say I don't think we should be spending that much.
8: The intelligence community is apparently larger, much larger. 1,271 government organizations comprise our intelligence community. Uh, 1,931 private companies are tied to it.
3: There are 854,000 people with top secret security clearance. More people have top secret security clearance than have pop secret security clearance. I was expecting the one, yeah. This, this I think you could get. I was thinking of the one that you rake over the thing and goes like that, but anyway. It's the mushroom cloud effect. I think it's nuclear power that makes that thing fluff up. (laughs) Folks, I'm an old man. Folks, (laughs) these are dangerous times. That's why we need the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the Department of Homeland Security the Director of National Intelligence, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the National Counterterrorism Center, the National Drug Intelligence Center, the Office of Intelligence Support, the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, the Information Security Oversight Office, and of course, the National Bureau of On-Screen Graphic Overload. Jimmy. In fact, in fact, folks, we are now protected by so many secret programs that the incoming director of national intelligence, James Clapper, <laughs> said, quote, there's only one entity in the entire universe that has visibility on all programs. That's God. That means God's a spy. <laughs> That's why he's always undercover as a burning bush or a grilled cheese sandwich. Our analysts have to keep up with a massive flow of data. The NSA alone processes 1.7 billion electronic intercepts per day. And that's just from Kanye West's Twitter page. (laughs) And folks, the system is clearly working. As retired General John Vine says, quote, Because it lacks a synchronizing process, we consequently can't effectively assess whether it is making us more safe. Which means it's making us more safe. You see, if our enemies infiltrate our spy networks, they, like us, will have no f***ing idea what is going on. So. 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 I am calling on Congress to make our intelligence system even larger. With a new agency to monitor our existing agencies. The National Central Homeland Surveillance Bureau of Intelligence Agencies Agency, the NCHSBIAA, or Inchisbia'a, whose great seal features an eagle looking up its own ass. could headquarter them anywhere
5: it's really nationwide the intelligence community in the United States has grown and grown with about 10,000 locations in the
3: United States 10,000 locations that's almost as many as Starbucks (laughs) speaking of which I could really go for a latte from the Starbucks under my desk Barry yeah Listen, uh, Barry, that's my name, Barry. Can I get a triple shot uh, Skinny Latte? Yes, you can, since
0: all I do is prepare such drinks and absolutely nothing else. <laughs> Great.
3: I'll go do that then. Here you go. Wow, that was already fast, it's like you can read my mind. Which I can't. Well, that's hot, so you're gonna wanna cool it off by speaking directly into the lid. <laughs>
0: Thanks. This order never happened.
3: (laughs) So, has our intelligence system become an unmanageable, impenetrable behemoth? Or have we not achieved that dream yet? Here to tell me how we'll reach it, please welcome the author of Cyberwar. And former counterterrorism czar, Richard Clark. Mr. Clark, thank you so much. Now, sir, as I said, you're the, author, you're the author of Cyber War. I am. Okay. And, and you used to be the head uh, you know, uh, guy out there working with security to try to keep the terrorists from getting us. Right. Is this not a great thing to have thousands of more people, hundreds of thousands of more people working in security, more is better.
6: Well, you know, I'm a Red Sox fan. And this year, maybe we should have 12 players on the field instead of nine, that might be better. Mm -hmm. But having 100 on the field, they'd fall over each other. And that's what's going on in the government. We have too many players on the field, and they spend all their time falling all over each other and not going after the
3: bad guys. We have almost a million people now working in intelligence. I couldn't tell you that. Because you don't know or I don't have the clearance. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody knows. These agencies outlined in the Washington Post article about how large it's gotten, you, is that all the agencies or are there more agencies that we will just never know about? We're discovering more every day. <laughs> we but Who around. is we, by the way? Hell, who is we? Those are, us... you, are you still with the intelligence community? No. And if you were, could you tell me?
6: We wander around Northern Virginia, <laughs> and we look in parking lots and elsewhere, and constantly we're discovering new agencies with vaults and guards. We could be attacked again. And lining up more and more intelligence agencies and more and more private contractors who are making a profit on this uh-huh. is not going to stop the attack. In fact. The fact that the intelligence agencies are tripping all over each other, coordinating with each other, makes an attack more likely. Sometimes small is better. And in this business, having too many people out there running around, making money, tripping all over each other, increases the chances that the next terrorist attack will
3: succeed. Is, is there so many, there are so many uh, intelligence officers out there that we don't know about now, is there any chance that I'm a spy and don't know it?
6: <laughs> you could be an agent that's being used without your knowing it, yes. I mean, this whole program could be a secret propaganda effort designed to drive Muslims in the Middle East crazy. You never know.
3: And if I found out, would I have to kill myself?
6: No, because if that's true, they'll kill you.
2: Barack Obama is to be commended for keeping his pledge to pull U.S. combat troops out of Iraq by the end of August. And congratulations to the soldiers and the families of the soldiers coming home. But let's remember that 4,415 members of the U.S. military never came home, and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died in this immoral and illegal war that Bush and Cheney launched. For no good reason. And let's also remember that the U.S. still has 56,000 troops in Iraq who may well see combat in the year ahead. And by the end of next year, it's not like the American presence will vanish. The State Department is building new fortresses in Iraq to go along with a massive embassy in Baghdad. It's spending upwards of $1 billion on outposts in Erbil, Mosul, Kirkuk, and Basra. And instead of U.S. soldiers guarding these facilities and the diplomats who work there, the State Department is going to be relying on 7,000 private contractors, mercenaries by any other name. This is good news for the likes of Dincorp and Blackwater, but not for Iraq and not for us.
9: Democracy didn't bring us anything. Democracy brought us a can of Coke and a beer.
1: (laughs) That was a citizen of a nation in which, quote, combat operations will officially end this month. What is the country?
5: That must be Iraq.
1: It is, in fact. Iraq. Hey, everybody, great news. The Iraq war is over. How do we know it's over? Because President Obama said so. (laughs) Why did he say so? Because he said he would say so. (laughs) But really nothing has changed. They've just rebranded the war. Combat operations may be over, but bullet regifting parties. (laughs) And of course, surprise blood drives have begun. (laughs) You know, it's amazing to think seven years ago, of course, we all thought we'd just go to Iraq, topple the regime and get out. But we just... Fell in love with the people and the scenery and and the random explosions. Turns out armed occupations are addictive, just like potato chips. If potato chips violently resisted your attempts to eat them. Um, Democracy never brought me a beer. I frequently will sit back on my couch and go,
0: Hey, democracy, you want a beer me? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. Isn't this really, uh, I mean, as you were sort of indicating, Peter, isn't this really a thing about semantics? Because, I mean, there's still going to be, I don't know, 50,000 troops there, which is like a lot of people. And it's, it's just sort of how you title it. Like, you know, like when I was a kid, my, my parents would have like Operation Make Better Choices, Luke. Yeah. But
8: I knew it was really Operation You're Grounded. Right. Well,
0: you know, well, we're, we're, you know 50,000, that's how many we've got in Germany, Right. Yeah, exactly We're not, we're not fighting just them at anymore Just at discos Yeah, right, exactly. just, yeah. And...
1: <laughs> you know, pe- people did compliment President Obama For how he handled this announcement He did not give his speech In front of a banner reading Mission accomplished <laughs> He's more subtle and nuanced than that He's President Obama Well, actually, he did prepare a banner But this being this president The thing was half a mile long And ran to 8,500 words <laughs> He's loquacious is what I'm saying hmm
5: Talk about a bill that uh, passed today, because I think it's very instructive as to uh, what our priorities are in this country. Unfortunately, uh, the House had passed uh, a war funding bill, but they had attached uh, 20 billion dollars to it in add-ons. Okay, so what were the add-ons? Well, that's important because if they're you know they don't make sense, maybe they shouldn't get passed. So uh, there's 10 billion in grants to school districts to avoid teacher layoffs. $5 billion to Pell Grants for low income college students, uh, $1 billion for a summer jobs program, $700 million to improve security along the U.S. Mexico border, and then about $4 billion to pay out uh, for black farmers and Indian trust funds that the United States government uh, was guilty of. The, the trust fund we mishandled and black farmers we discriminated against, those issues have been resolved, and we owe them that money, right? Well, we're not going to pay. Uh, that didn't get funded. The schools didn't get funded. And even the security on the border didn't get funded. Uh, the Republicans refused, and a couple of uh, Democrats, of course, as always, joined them, and they killed it. What's the only thing that got funded? The war. So uh, they got war funding. Oh, and to be fair, uh, a little bit of foreign aid, uh, but don't get too carried away, just a little bit to Haiti. And then uh, a lot of it is also to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera. Uh, okay, so that's also part of the war money. And then uh, one other thing oh, uh, for the tremendous damage we did to our veterans in Vietnam, we're still paying out for the damage from Agent Orange. So the consequences of earlier wars, which we should, of course, pay, but understand that that lasts for decades and decades. So what does that tell you about our priorities? we always have money for war but when it comes to education or spending money on the american population here at home mm, not so much people don't get as rich off of that uh whereas the defense contractors get very rich off of the uh, wars and they've bought all the generals who retired we, took, we did a, a story earlier where we told you about 80% of the high ranking generals that retire go to defense contractors and get their bribe i mean their payment after they retire, for all the good contracts they got earlier, all the government workers, whether they're the senators or people that worked in the White House or their staff, they all get hired by those same guys. They all get campaign contributions from those same guys. So if you're a low income student, what money do you have? You don't have any money. You're not getting a Pell Grant. No, good luck to you, buddy. Here's some bootstraps. You're a giant defense company, of course. Here's uh, $60 billion.
0: You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at festivalef.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
9: This is the day by which American combat operations in Iraq will have, have been declared to have come to an end. We have pulled all our combat troops out of Iraq. Those were the troops that were um, training the Iraqi police and and military and uh, killing insurgents. And the only troops left now are training the Afghan police and military and killing insurgents. So it's a good moment, maybe, to evaluate that little enterprise with some numbers uh, triggered by State Department spokesman P.J. Crowley having said uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, that the United States will never, you know, abandon Iraq because we have, quote, a trillion dollar investment there. Uh, this is in Slight contrast to uh, what former Assistant Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz was saying shortly after we invaded Iraq.
2: There are significant resources available uh, for Iraqi reconstruction that come from the billions of dollars of frozen accounts, the $12 billion or so that's in the UN escrow account in Paris, and of course the potential of significant revenues from uh, Iraq's own resources. So. That money's all going to get applied to the effort of reconstruction, but that should help a lot.
9: It should help a lot. But that was before he fell in love with Shahariza. US two thousand nine monthly spending in Iraq seven point three billion. Two thousand eight monthly spending in Iraq twelve billion. Spending per second five thousand dollars in two thousand eight. Cost of deploying one U.S. soldier for one year in Iraq three hundred and ninety thousand dollars. Lost and unaccounted for in Iraq nine billion dollars worth of U.S taxpayer's money, 549 million in spare parts shipped to US contractors, also 190,000 guns including 110,000 AK-47s, missing 1 billion dollars in tractor trailers, tank recovery vehicles, machine guns, rocket propelled grenades and other equipment and services provided to Iraqi forces. Wasted in Iraq 10 billion per according to congressional hearings. Halliburton overcharges classified by the Pentagon as unreasonable and unsupported, 1400000000 billion. Non-U.S. troop casualties, not really, 316. U.S. troops wounded, 31,000 U.S. troops with serious mental health problems, 30% of the troops over there. Private contractors in Iraq, more than 180,000 at the height of the war. Journalists killed there. 141, by U.S. forces, 14. Iraqi civilians killed, estimated, between 50,000 to 100,000, but they may be much higher. Some informed estimates place Iraqi civilian casualties at over 600,000. Iraqi insurgents killed, 55,000. Iraqis displaced inside Iraq, 2,255,000. Iraqi refugees in Syria and Jordan, 2.1 million. Iraqi unemployment rate, 27 to 60%. Consumer price inflation in 2006. That was a bad year, 50%. Iraqi children suffering from chronic malnutrition, 28% as of June 2007. Maybe better now. Percent of professionals who have left Iraq since 2003, 40%. Iraqi physicians who have left, 12,000. Murdered, 2,000. Average daily hours Iraqi homes have electricity, one to two hours. That's according to the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. uh, Average daily hours Iraqi homes have electricity, 10 in 2007. Baghdad in 2007, five hours. Pre-war daily hours Baghdad homes had electricity, 16. Number of Iraqi homes connected to sewer systems, 37%. Iraqis without access to adequate water supplies, 70% water treatment plants rehabilitated 22% percent of iraqis who believe the coalition forces are responsible for any pr- improvement in security less than 1% iraqis who feel less secure because of the occupation 67% but ladies and gentlemen we have a trillion dollar commitment there we're not going away
1: Their big
5: checks. zones
1: international no longer green. And ethnic cleansing got the place you clean. Hours of power in Baghdad each day. Nice place to visit, very nice place to stay. Traded centralized murder for freelance crime. Spreading democracy, one vote at a time. Stop paying the Sunnis QV about fees No more war with Iran Cause they helped run the place Kept the UN relevant Cause that was our pledge Kuwait is happy Kurds are still on
7: Um, And good morning, Baghdad. It is already tomorrow in Iraq, which means that it is the end of America's Iraq war, which started there seven and a half years ago for this reason.
4: We know that Iraq and Al Qaeda have had high level contacts that go back a decade. We've learned that Iraq has trained Al Qaeda members in bomb making, in poisons, and deadly gases. Iraq has sent bomb making and document forgery experts to work with Al Qaeda. Iraq has also provided Al Qaeda with chemical and biological weapons training.
7: He's a threat because he is dealing with Al Qaeda. Iraq was linked to Al Qaeda and therefore to 9-11 and therefore we had to invade Iraq. None of that was true. And so when those rationales stopped passing the smell test, the Bush administration decided to sell the American people instead on another justification for invading Iraq
2: simply stated there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction there is no doubt that he is amassing them
4: to use against our friends against our allies and against us Iraq's weapons of mass destruction are controlled by a murderous tyrant who has already used chemical weapons to kill thousands of people we know he's been
2: Absolutely devoted to trying to acquire nuclear weapons.
7: Saddam Hussein has and is amassing weapons of mass destruction to use against America. That, of course, turned out to be bullpucky as well. Leading Bush administration war proponent Paul Wolfowitz conceded later that it was mostly for political convenience that the Bush administration decided to go with the whole WMD argument in the early stages of the war. Speaking from the White House briefing room on April 10th, 2003, Press Secretary Ari Fleischer said this, make no mistake, as I said earlier, we have high confidence that they have weapons of mass destruction. That is what this war was about and is about. No it isn't, and no it wasn't, ever. Once the war was well underway, even the Bush administration was forced to concede, reluctantly, that there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, whereupon the president decided to make it into a joke.
4: No weapons over there. (laughs) Maybe under here. (laughs) That was
7: just as hilarious at the time as it still is today, with more than 4,400 American lives to bolster the belly laughs. Ultimately, none of the things our government at the time told us were the reasons we had to start a war in Iraq were true. Opponents of the war said they thought that at the time, and pretty much everybody else realized it soon after things really got going in Iraq. So then after Iraq did 9-11, after Iraq has WMDs, after those, the justification for the war started to change even further. We needed a new, yet new retroactive reason for why that war had to be waged.
4: The rise of a free and self-governing Iraq will deny terrorists a base of operation, discredit their narrow ideology, and give momentum to reformers across the region. The goal in Iraq and Afghanistan is for there to be democratic and free countries who are allies in the war on terror. That's the goal.
7: Spreading peace and democracy. That was the third try at made up reasons why we invaded. Fourth try was perhaps the most remarkable. Remember this? That we had to invade because Saddam Hussein was gaming the UN oil for food program.
4: Saddam was systematically gaming the system, using the U.N. oil for food program to try to influence countries and companies in an effort to undermine sanctions. America is safer today with Saddam Hussein in prison.
7: That was really the most amazing one. President Bush, who went to war in defiance of the UN, went to war in Iraq in defiance of the UN, trying to retroactively convince us that really, we only went to war against Iraq to protect the integrity of the UN oil for food program. We're just taking care of our buddies at the UN. In the end, after riffling through all of those different rationales for invading, the Bush administration pretty much settled on the lone justification that nobody could take issue with. The lone justification that Saddam Hussein was a bad man.
4: I sent American troops to Iraq to make its people free. Removing Saddam Hussein from power was the right decision. The men and women who crossed into Iraq five years ago removed a tyrant, liberated a country, and rescued millions from unspeakable horrors.
7: Nobody will dispute the fact that Saddam Hussein was in fact a bad man. An evil tyrant who murdered his own people, committed countless atrocities like lots of other bad men around the globe. It should also be noted that Saddam Hussein being a bad man had absolutely nothing to do with why we invaded Iraq. On the occasion of President Obama's Oval Office address tonight, a speech that marks the end of U.S. combat operations in Iraq, nobody, including the current president, seems to want to talk about exactly why we started this war in the first place. And that is maybe not surprising. This current president is a look forward, not look back kind of guy. But on the day the war ends, what the war was for is sort of the elephant in the room. As long as nobody talks about that that touchy issue about what the war was for, Congressional Republicans were actually more than eager to talk about Iraq today, but what they wanted to talk about was how President Obama should be thanking George W. Bush and apologizing for having opposed the surge that was supposedly what won this war in the end.
5: Some leaders who opposed, criticized, and fought tooth and nail to stop the surge strategy now proudly claim credit for the results.
7: In addition to House Republican Leader John Boehner, who you saw there, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell also said today, quote, I think we should also be thankful that another president had the determination and the will to carry out the plan that made tonight's announcement possible. And then, then there was this from Republican Senator John McCain, quote, it would be nice if President Obama could finally find it in himself to give his predecessor the credit he deserves. The Credit he deserves. While we are um, refusing to go down the memory hole here. Can we just remember what the idea behind the surge was? Why we did the surge in the first place? This is not an unknowable thing. The justifications for the surge, why we did the surge, all this stuff is on tape.
4: We will help this Iraqi government succeed. And the first step for success is to do something about the sectarian violence in Baghdad so they can have breathing space in order to do the political work necessary to assure the different factions in Baghdad. Factions that are recovering from years of tyranny, that there is a hopeful future for them and their families. I would call that political
7: breathing space. Political breathing space. That was the justification for the surge. The point of the surge was to set up a political resolution in Iraq among Iraqi politicians to provide the breathing space necessary for a functioning government to be formed in Iraq. It has now been more than five months since Iraq held its last elections and there is no government in Iraq. The surge strategy got a lot more attention than the agreement for U.S. troops to get out of Iraq next year that President Bush had to sign before he left office. So the surge strategy did provide some good political cover in that respect for President Bush. But in terms of the goal of the surge, a political settlement in Iraq, no, not yet. That has not happened. The war was started under the pretense that Iraq had some connection to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, which it didn't or that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which they didn't, or that we were going to somehow democratize the Middle East by invading Iraq, which we didn't. Who knows, maybe it really was all about stopping fraud in the UN oil for food program, I don't know. The surge strategy employed in 2007 in Iraq was about creating the political breathing space necessary for a political settlement in Iraq. That also has not happened. And yet the critics of President Obama today say that they want credit They want credit for all that's transpired in Iraq in this war. Former Bush administration officials Paul Wolfowitz and John Bolton remarkably turned up in the op-ed pages today to make new suggestions about what they think should happen in Iraq since, you know, their old advice was so spot on. Republicans arguing today that George W. Bush deserved to be thanked by name by President Obama tonight. Republicans are clamoring for credit here as this war finally ends. Well, credit where credit is due. Two American things have been accomplished in Iraq. Tens of thousands, more than a million Americans, served their country in a horrible war for seven and a half years under horrible circumstances and under political leadership that was not honest about why they had been sent there. Those Americans are to be honored for what they did and what they gave, and they are to be taken care of as veterans now that they're home. The other accomplishment in Iraq is that we have finally found a way to leave, to get combat troops out now. Those two accomplishments belong to this president who is overseeing the withdrawal from Iraq and to the people who served, the people who served honorably for these seven and a half long years. Credit for all the rest of it, for the made up reasons for going in, for going in in the first place, for letting Afghanistan spill out of control in favor of this war, for the constant revision of the justifications for war to obfuscate the craven petty radicalism that really started it. Republicans, you guys can go right ahead and take that credit. Go right ahead, credit where credit is due.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. I will be getting back to listener phone calls on the next show. I just put it on hold for this one uh, in favor of an interview I actually conducted because Jamie and Allison from Citizen Radio actually were kind enough to have me on their show. They asked me about Best of the Left, and uh, I got to talk about the show and kind of promote it to their listeners, which was very nice of them. And uh, and, and so – while I had them on the line, I wanted to turn the tables and ask them a little bit and get their reactions to uh, to them being included in this show. And if you recall, when, when I first included them in the show, they, the, the reaction was mixed, uh, mostly positive, but definitely mixed. And, uh, and so I asked them a couple of questions about that whole issue and essentially asked them to defend their existence. So this interview, it was edited. The, the full interview is available. I posted it to Facebook and Twitter. It turned out to be about 19 minutes long. Uh, you know, Lots of fun was had by all, but that was just too long to fit here at the end of the show. So I edited it down. This is about nine minutes. But of course, if you want the whole thing, you can check that out on Facebook or Twitter. You do not need to sign up for Facebook or Twitter or make any commitments of any kind just to go to facebook.com slash best of the left or twitter.com slash best of the left and find the link where you can just Click it to download or, uh, or listen right there in your browser. So without further ado, this is the edited version of that interview. You'll get the idea of uh, everything that was talked about. And uh, yes, they do swear. I'm, I'm here with the, the fine folks from Citizen Radio. And I wanted to have you guys on um, first to tease the fact that like some interesting things are going on behind the scenes. And we're not going to talk yes. about that today but uh but if you are interested in independent media definitely check out citizen radio we are citizenradio.com subscribe to the feed uh, you know there, iTunes not iTunes whatever you want it's all set up um, but i wanted to have you guys on uh before the big announcement because it, as as you know, it was a little bit of uh just just a really minor debacle when I started using you guys uh for for the show and you know lots of people love what you do. a lot of people were really confused uh about, <laughs> about what you were and so I, so I had a couple of clarifying questions first of all um what are you yeah so well fair enough yeah what what is what is your show all about what's the premise i suppose
10: well the the sound we always give everybody is we're like cnn but with more
11: swearing but i guess to your audience we don't have to say cnn because you have a more educated audience so we're like democracy now with more swearing oh good okay
10: yes um And, I yeah, I think what puts people off about us... Let, let's start the interview like that. Yeah. Here's what people hate about
11: us. I'm also a little bummed that we're only a slight debacle where it's like... Either, and not a flaming train wreck. Yeah, either we should be very, very good or a fucking disaster nightmare. Right. But we're just kind of like, ah, you're kind of annoying. We're meh.
0: Well, 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 the interesting thing about my show is that I get very, very little feedback. So when I get, like, three emails who are like... <laughs> Hey, who are those guys who swear? Like I don't know about them. That yeah, right? th-
11: then this is know. this is like the FCC and the Janet Jackson tit thing all over again. All it takes are three people calling, and they're like, "That's like forty billion people." Right? Exactly. So
10: we are exactly like Janet Jackson's
11: boob. Yeah. So that's where we are. We're. I mean, here's. Here's what I think we are, is, you know, Alison and I come from two very different backgrounds, which is, Alison has an education, I do not. Um, Allison is a writer and a journalist, and she blogs and has been quoted by Glenn Greenwald and Digby and Roger Ebert for all of this, like, you know, crack reporting, and I've done stand-up for 10 years and made my living that way. Did you mean ace reporting? Ace reporting. Yes. I'm sorry, ace reporting. Ace reporter, Alison (laughs) Kilcoyne. And- keep the little press card
0: in your, in your bowler hat. hat? Yeah. Yes, I do. I do have a
10: bowler hat. And she
11: has one of, she has one of those old timey cameras too, that they, uh, they brought on the scene in the fifties with the big,
10: look, I know I stick out a little bit, a little bit, but I feel authentic. Okay. Um, so,
0: (laughs) so, well, 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 so, so, you know, I, I feel like this is kind of interesting. Uh, Like I said, lots of my listeners love you, but, but kind of the, the idea of having you on now is basically what I'm saying is why don't you come on and defend yourselves? That's, yes. That's kind of what this is turning into. Like you've been accused, and now tell us why. Uh, oh, dude! But why, I, I, why I, I, anyone should uh, should not hate you? That, that's yeah. kind of what this is. No,
11: turning into. No, no, into. no. I I'm so used to that, and okay. so is Allison. So it's fine. Um, I I should really point out, and like you know, we just had you on our show, and we thanked you for this. But I'll, I'll thank you on your show as well. Which is, we have gotten some of the coolest email from your listeners and i also find it really funny that like your listeners are like hardcore where they can never just say i found you on someone else's podcast they're always like jay on best of the left played you on episode 121 at the six minute mark and like they're like very like specific and like meticulous when it comes to documenting your episodes but they're awesome and we really only got two or three emails saying that they absolutely despised us, as I'm sure they were the same people that emailed you. And, you know, what I do want to say is there are probably lots of your listeners who fast forward it or whatever, but our whole way of thinking is this. We are not trying to convince your listeners that the war is illegal, that gay people should be allowed to marry, that Obama should be held accountable, that we need more regulation in government, Um, because your audience knows that. So the reason that we talk the way we do and the reason that You know, I mean, I know you play the clips you choose because you think you listen to us for the comedy because, like I said, you know pretty much what we know. You read the same news sources. But the, you know, any day you can tune in and hear an hour long interview with Lieutenant Dan Choi, or we had an hour with Howard Zinn like the week before he passed, and Noam Chomsky's doing the show for the fifth time next week. Or you can tune in and hear really silly stuff. I mean, our whole show is improvised. It's like
10: jazz.
11: It's like jazz. We're like, we're jazz. It's very confusing. And (laughs) sometimes it's great. And sometimes you're like, I think they're out of tune. But... (laughs) And it's never the same twice. Yeah. (laughs) But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to – and what we have done is we're trying to speak to an audience who has not been spoken to before and an audience that okay. is really disenfranchised and really sick of politics. Right,
10: and, and they're the, the kids that might have fallen through the cracks if they had just gone from nothing to, like, C-SPAN. You know, we're kind of – we catch them in between where we're like, hey, it's okay if you don't know everything right away. We talk kind of informally on this show. We kind of give you, like, History 101, Politics 101 and sort of ease them into a higher level of political understanding. So,
0: b- before we go, I want to clarify a couple things. The biggest confusion about you guys is uh is whether or not you mean the things you say. So, I, I just I just had a couple of quick uh, clarifying questions. Oh, um God. I I uh you know, I met you guys in Netroots Nation at uh, yeah. at Ve- in, in Vegas.
11: Everything we said about Vegas was true.
10: To be fair, we were there as spies for Republicans. So okay,
0: so yeah. so, so uh, about Vegas, this is, this is one of the one of the things that came up. Um, does the the Palms Hotel really have a Rape Night Wednesdays? Uh,
10: it's it was a little inaccurate. It's not every Wednesday. It's every other Wednesday. Yeah,
11: every the Wednesdays in between they have karaoke. Yeah, I. Uh, no, that was, you did tell me about this email. Uh, yeah, sometimes when we are making fun of things and we say something incredibly extreme and illegal, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it is hyperbole and, and it is, it is not true. Um, it is the Rio that has.
10: Yeah. I think when you listen to our show, you have to just accept that there's going to be these digressions where it almost borders on surreal improv, and that is spliced between serious political talk and fantastic interviews. So, I mean, that's just if you really hate the the weird digressy stuff, then
11: I guess maybe not. Not just digressive, but it's like if you're going to listen to something and think that everything is literal, like it's a comedy show. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing. is, But, but it's also, it's not hard to tell the difference between when we're joking and when we're serious.
4: I
10: thought. I, <laughs> yeah. Apparently there's a few confused people out there.
11: Sometimes. Well, and w-
0: which leads me to, um, does this also mean, Allison, that you were not raised by the Amish?
10: i was we talked about that I, I should stop lying right yes For this is why <laughs> people right. get
11: confused he's asking uh, us legitimate questions
10: i was not raised by the amish but we just talked about the amish again in the, the episode we just recorded which will be up tomorrow
11: yeah oh, no okay. allison was raised by by very loving parents yes so i so, was
0: so you weren't you weren't raised by the amish but i i do assume you still think that they hold on quote uh They're fucking weird. Is that?
10: Yes. (laughs) That I will stand by until my death. Well,
11: (laughs) here's what happened with that. It will
10: come shortly by the hands of the Amish.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what's so funny about that. So we were talking about religion and Allison – Went to stick up for the Amish and went to say, you know, if you're going to have your little weird religion, but you're going to be peaceful about it and not, you know, oppress others, uh, that's great. And then we sarcastically started making fun of the Amish. And then we got an email today being like well it was a while ago but like we just got to it today where he was talking about he was like i live in lancaster pennsylvania and those are the most conservative fucking backwards pieces of shit i thought you were serious and i was so glad someone was finally making fun of the amish and like he really thought that finally he found the one radio show that is going to crusade against these crazy wagon driving bearded people right um but yeah we, we 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 have bigger bones to pick than i would say with the, maybe you do well, I- Allison. Yeah, again, because remember, she was raised by the Amish in the rape room of the Palms Hotel in Las Vegas. Wink, <laughs> wink.
0: So there you go. That is the edited version of this interview. The full interview is uh, just about twice as long as that and is available instantly right now as the bonus content for this episode for uh, users of the Best of the Left iPhone and iPod Touch application. It is also available directly linked at twitter.com bestofleft, facebook.com bestofleft, as well as uh, linked in the show notes on the blog for this episode. So that's going to do it for me coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors who support the show from bestoftheleft.com.
1: This is the floor. We'll take you out in the open door. This is not my life. It's just a fond farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like.